Samuel, uh, what we have are a series of case studies. That's what we've seen in 1 Samuel, and that's what we continue to see here in 2 Samuel, what I would call case studies. Now, case studies are very effective tools for teaching and for learning. I could tell you a lot of principles about what God says and, and how life is to be lived, but, and, and I could give you a lot of principles about the Christian life, and that could be helpful, but when you see how those principles work out practically in someone's life, when you see how someone took a spiritual principle and applied it in a real-life situation, well, that's a very powerful thing. In fact, case studies are such effective tools for learning and for teaching that the Harvard Business School focuses almost exclusively in their curriculum and in their instruction on case studies. They'll look at uh, what happened in a particular business or what happened in a particular corporate structure in a particular case and how it played out in real life, how those particular business principles worked out in a real life situation. And God likes using case studies uh, to teach us as well. And we're going to find a lot of these here in 2 Samuel as we look at the life of David. And the books of 1 and 2 Samuel could be called a tale of two kings. Uh, and those kings are Saul and David. Saul was the first king of Israel, and David is now going to be the second king of Israel. And the dividing point between the two books, which by the way, were originally one book. The reason they were divided into two books is because they used to use these giant scrolls and, well, that was, you know, hard to have a humongous scroll in your house. And so, you know, they're copying them and, and wanting to share them. And so they divided these books. And the dividing point they chose to divide this book up, which was originally one book, is at the death of Saul. And that's where we left off just a few weeks ago. Here in 2 Samuel, we're going to see David finally assume the throne of Israel and become king. So in 1 Samuel, we saw Saul's kingdom, and here in 2 Samuel, we're going to see David's kingdom, and these two kingdoms, one of them I am going to call the right-side-up kingdom. The other one I'm going to call the upside-down kingdom, and I'm going to explain what that means. But uh, the upside-down kingdom and the right-side-up kingdom. The title of today's message is the upside-down kingdom. And there's a very real sense in which the Bible is, the whole Bible is a story of two kingdoms. And there's also a very real sense in which all of our lives are played out in the tension between two kingdoms. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told by Paul the Apostle that the message of the gospel is that God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. To be a Christian means to, to be one who has been made, one who has become a citizen of God's kingdom. But here's the thing. With these two kingdoms that are present, that are both at work in our world, what that means is that it is possible to be a citizen of one kingdom and yet live your life under the influence and according to the pattern of the other kingdom. And many people do that on both sides. And, and so all of our lives are lived in this tension between these two kingdoms that are, that are present and that are at work in our world. And that's why it's so critical for us to understand three things which are, which are true of every kingdom. The pattern, the power, and the product of those kingdoms. The pattern, the, every kingdom has a pattern. That is a set of values. There are things which they uphold and say, yes, this is what we're about. And there are things that they reject and say, no, that's not important to us. 
right? So every kingdom has a pattern, a system of values. Also, every kingdom has a power, and the power is the driving force behind those values, the driving force which drives people to live according to those values. And lastly, of course, living according to these values, it produces a product. Each one has a product. What that set of patterns produces in a person's life. What are the results of living according to that past pattern? To live the Christian life, to walk in the newness of life that has been given to us in Jesus Christ, what that means is to live your life according to the pattern of God's kingdom. But, but you see, no one will do that, especially when you look at what the pattern of God's kingdom is. No one would want to do that. No one would naturally do that. The only way you will ever live according to the pattern of God's kingdom is if you understand the power and the product of that kingdom. So that's some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Here in 1 Samuel, again, we have these two kingdoms that I'm talking about, the right-side-up kingdom and the upside-down kingdom, and they're illustrated for us in a very vivid way in the reigns of Saul and David. So let me get you back up to speed. Uh, that was just a little taste of what's to come, but let me get you back up to speed here on these two men who, who we're talking about in our story. Saul, if you'll remember back to 1 Samuel, Saul was what we might call the people's king. He was the people's king. Saul was everything that the people of Israel desired and sought after in a king. He looked like a king. He acted like a king. He was just like all the other kings of all the other nations in the world. And that is exactly what Israel wanted. That is exactly what they begged God to give them. They wanted a king just like all the other nations have. They wanted a king so they could be just like everybody else. And that is precisely who Saul was. But here's the thing, and, and this is really true of our lives as well. God had a bigger vision. God had a higher calling for his people Israel than that they would simply just be like everybody else. Do you know that that's true of your life as well? God has a bigger vision for your life. God has a higher calling for your life than that you would just be just like everybody else, that you would just assimilate and fit in and go with the flow of culture and what everybody else around you is doing. And so after God had given them what they asked for, what they wanted in a king, there came a time when God said, okay, that's enough. I, I've let you see what it's like to have a king just like all the other nations have. Now I'm going to give you a different kind of king. I'm going to give you my kind of king. One who's not going to lead in the pattern and in the ways of all the other nations and all the other kings out there. I'm going to give you a king who leads after the pattern of my own heart. And that man, of course, was David. David was, in many ways, the complete antithesis of Saul. Everything that Saul was, almost to the T, David was the opposite. Saul was stately. He was from an upper-class family. He looked like a king. He, 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 he was the opposite of David. I mean, think about David. It, says, it tells us that he was basically a redneck, right? He was from a poor, working-class family. He liked to throw rocks at stuff. He, uh, he liked to play with sticks. He was outside a lot. Ruddy means, well, it can mean many things. I mean, it, it basically means that he had red hair and freckles. I mean, he kind of looked like Opie from the Andy Griffith show. And, uh, you know, David was the kind of guy 
who no one would have ever picked to be king. He's like wearing like cut-off jean shorts with the pockets hanging out, running around playing with sticks and catching crawdads. That's the kind of guy you can imagine, right? He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like a king. He's not stately. He doesn't act the way that people expect a king to act. He doesn't look the way that people expect a king to look. But David had something that Saul did not have, that none of the other kings of any of the other nations had. David had a heart for God. And that is an important lesson for us, that we as people, you know, we have this tendency to look and to focus on outward appearance and judge things primarily by how they look and appear outwardly, but God looks at the heart. And that was a major lesson in 1 Samuel. And God looked at the heart of this, this red-headed kid from the country and he saw in him something that was rare. He saw in him something that was beautiful. He saw in him a heart for God, a heart that desired to know God and pursue God with all that was in him in everything he did. And God said, that's the kind of king that I want for my people. That's the kind of king that my people need. They just don't realize it. And we saw in 1 Samuel how while Saul was yet king, the prophet Samuel came and he anointed David as the new king of Israel. And he announced to Saul that God had replaced him as king with a better man, a man after his own heart. But see, what did Saul do? Saul refused to accept that. Saul refused to step down as king and hand things over to David. I mean, think about this. This would be like if you had an employee at work and you, you go and you fire them. And then the next day, they just keep showing up, and they, they will not get out of their office, and the new guy comes to take over the office, and he just chases him out of there, you know, into the parking lot, trying to beat him up every day. That's pretty much what David did to, or sorry, what Saul did to David. Saul refused to accept that God had rejected him as king. He refused to step down as king and hand it over to David. And for years, Saul chased after David. He tried to kill him in the hope that if he could just get rid of David, that he could hold on to his position as king. But as Saul spent all his energy and his resources chasing after David, he forgot to do what was his actual job, which was to be king. You see, instead of using the army of Israel to defend the nation from outside invasion, he employed the army to help him in his you know, personal hobby of chasing after David and his personal vendetta to hunt and kill David. And as the army was busy doing Saul's errand, uh, the nation was left unprotected and the Philistines began to wage a full-scale invasion of Israel and they successfully took over at least half of the country. And during this invasion of the Philistines, Saul was killed in battle. That's where we left off at the end of 1 Samuel. And here we begin 2 Samuel, and we're going to see how now that Saul is out of the picture, David is finally going to be able to take his God-appointed place as king over Israel. And like many things in life, it's not going to happen easily. It's not going to happen smoothly. It's not going to happen immediately. It's not going to be without struggle and difficulty. But as we see David become king, we're going to see how David and David's kingdom are fundamentally different than Saul and his kingdom. David and his kingdom, they, they function, they operate by a different pattern of values, a different set of values than that which Saul and all the other kings of the world functioned according to. And, and in this, we have a powerful illustration of the right-side-up kingdom and the upside-down kingdom. And we're going to see in each of these the pattern and the power and the product of these two kingdoms. And there, I believe there's some very important 
implications for all of us in this. So let's take a look at the text. If you have your Bibles, do follow along with me in 2 Samuel, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, and his clothes were torn, and dirt was on his head. And he came to David, and he fell on the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David, at this point in his life, is is coming out of a prolonged period of spiritual decline, what you might call backsliding. For the last few years now, David has been living with the Philistines, basically living as a Philistine. He's lost sight of who God called him to be, and, and the easiest thing for him to do was to run away from his problems, and so that's exactly what David did. He ran away from his problems, and he ran away to the land of the Philistines to get away from his problems. But as many of you know, maybe from experience, running away from your problems doesn't actually solve any problems. All it does is give you a whole new set of problems. And David came to realize that for himself, and he turned back to the Lord after a prolonged period of, of backsliding. He turned back to the Lord with his whole heart. And this was at the same time that the Philistines were invading Israel. And so now here comes this messenger to tell David this news of what happened back home. And he says, Saul is dead. This man who has been trying to kill David for years, this man who refused to give up his throne and let David take his rightful place as king, he's dead. He's gone. Not, not only is Saul dead, but so is Jonathan, Saul's son. Now, Jonathan was David's best friend. There had been a time in David's life after David defeated Goliath that, that David was welcomed by Saul to live at his palace with him because David became a national hero. And as David was living there in Saul's palace, he became close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They quickly discovered about each other that they had the same heart for God. They both wanted to live their lives with hearts on fire for God, sold out for him, trusting him to do great things and making themselves available to him so that he might even do great things through them. And even when Saul uh, turned against David, Jonathan remained faithful to his friend David, and they, they, they had this bond that was thicker than blood. And so now here comes the news. Saul is dead. So is Jonathan. The Philistines have wiped out the Israelites and invaded their land. Think about this. Put your, try to put yourself in those shoes. How would you react to that news? I mean, obviously you would be saddened by the loss of your friend, but how would you feel about the downfall of the person who literally dedicated his life to ruining yours? How would you feel about that? I'm sure some of us would feel relieved, relieved that that person's no longer around, that they could never hurt you again, that they could never hurt anybody else again. Maybe you'd feel a sense of gratification, satisfaction that this man who did so much to hurt you finally got what was coming to him. Well, let's look at what happens in verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And the young man said to him, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And, he looked, and when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. 
So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Now let me ask you this. Why has this messenger come to David? Well, why is he here? I mean, this is a long way to travel from, uh, from way up in Mount Gilboa all the way down to Ziklag. I mean, that's several days of traveling. Why is this guy doing this? Why is he wasn't sent here. He says he's come kind of on his own volition. And, and what's he doing? Well, here's what he's doing. He's come here because he thinks that David is going to be happy to hear this news that Saul is dead. This guy's traveled this long distance to report this news to David. And he comes and he tells David this story. And he says, basically, David, I'm the guy who killed him. I, I dealt him his death blow. And, and he says, look, and I even, I, I stole his crown and I stole his armband right his bracelet his royal crown his royal bracelet and i'm here to present them to you why is he doing this it's pretty clear why when you think about it because he is expecting that david is going to be elated with joy at saul's downfall he thinks that probably if, if he presents these things to david david would be like awesome now i have the crown now i have the armband i can assert myself as king over israel and he's going to give this guy a big fat reward that's what this guy's expecting i mean saul ruined david's life out of jealousy out of spite saul took away everything that david had saul took away david's family his home his career his security and maybe worst of all he robbed david of the best years of his life he took away his 20s. David spent all of his 20s running from Saul. He took away years of his life that David can now never get back. David had every reason to be bitter against Saul, to hate him. And everyone assumed that after all that Saul's done to David, of course David would be happy to hear of Saul's downfall. He would be ready to assert himself as the king of Israel. I mean, that's exactly what Saul would have done to David, right? Absolutely. That's what Saul would have done. In fact, that's what anyone else would have done in this situation. I mean, that's the way that all the other kings, all the other people who wanted to be king would have acted and operated in this situation. It's only natural that this man would think that David would be overjoyed by the news of Saul's downfall, that, that David would be rewarding him for killing Saul and stealing his crown and bracelet. You know, many people wonder if what this guy said was true because it seems in the end of 1 Samuel, and again, remember, this is one book originally. It seems that at the end of 1 Samuel, it seems that Saul died by a self-inflicted wound. And so the question is, did this guy just make up this story in order to win favor with David? Or is this actually maybe the two stories fit together? That Saul tried to uh, kill himself but did not succeed. And as the Philistines were coming so that he wouldn't be captured, he asked this person to put him out of his misery. Now, it's definitely possible that that's the case. And if that is true, if what the man says is true, how incredibly poetic would it be? How incredibly ironic would it be? And here's why. Because what does this guy say? Who is he? He's an Amalekite. Do you know why that's important? Do you remember why Saul lost the throne in the first place? Because God had asked him, had sent him on a task to bring judgment upon the Amalekites and Saul refused to do so. And do you see that Saul refused to do what God told him to do and in the end, because Saul didn't deal with it, now this ends up being the end of him, ends up killing him. 
And the principle is very clear for you and for me in this. If you will not fully deal with some area of your life that God has told you that you need to put to death because you think that you can handle it, that you can manage it, that it's not really that big of a deal. If you don't put it to death as God has told you to, there is a, a very significant chance that one day that thing will come back to destroy you. Colossians 3 verse 5, it says this, Put to death everything in you that is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. In that same spirit, Romans 8, 13, it says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So let's look at how David responds to this news in verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they, mount, they, sorry, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am a son, the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your mouth has testified against you. I killed the Lord's anointed. So that's pretty much the opposite of what this guy expected to happen. Um, you know, he came, you can imagine him come with this big grin on his face, thumbs up, you know, he's excited. David's going to be super stoked that I, you know, killed Saul for him. David's going to love me. He's going to give me a reward. David's going to want to throw that crown upon his head and assert himself as king. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Who wouldn't do that in, in David's position? But David does something very unexpected, doesn't he? he? He doesn't rejoice over Saul's death. He doesn't celebrate, but he mourns. And instead of rewarding this man, he punishes him. David basically does the opposite of what everyone expected him to do and what just about anybody else in his situation would have done. And that's really key. We're going to continue with that. It continues. Let's go from verse 17. David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. And he said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those are cities of the Philistines, by the way. Let the daughters of the Philistines, oh, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mountains, O Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields or offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, be beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle." Jonathan lies slain in the high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. How pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. You know, David is this, he's a poet, he's a songwriter, and what does he do? He puts his grief and his mourning into a song. This song is known as the Song of the Bow. 
And in this song, we see the sincere expression of a broken heart, of a contrite heart. Not only for Jonathan, but surprisingly, also for Saul. Surprisingly, also for this man who relentlessly chased David and caused him so much grief for so many years. Now put yourself in David's shoes. Would you be able to write a song like this for a person in your life who has hurt you deeply? In this song, look at what David does. You'll notice he chooses to focus on and and approve of what was excellent about Saul. What's excellent about him? In verse 19, he writes of Saul's glory. In verse 21, he speaks of Saul's strength and his dignity. In 23, he, he praises Saul's courage that he never turned back. In 24, he praises Saul's economic leadership. He says he was a, he was a good leader. And David commands that this song be taught to all the people throughout the land. And that's interesting, right? Because rather than wanting the people to think poorly of Saul, David wants the people to remember and sing about what was good about Saul. You know, some people rejoice when they see other people fall. Because they they see it as an opportunity for them to, when that person has fallen, they can stand on top of them and they'll look that much taller, right? They look that much better if they point out how other people have fallen. Proverbs 24, verse 17, it tells us this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. That's what David's doing. But the reason uh, it's surprising is because it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? It seems to be the opposite of what would come naturally to us. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense for David to point out to everybody that, that Saul was just, honestly, he was just a terrible person? But David makes a choice here. He's making a choice not to be bitter against Saul, even though Saul hurt him. He's making a choice not to put Saul down in order to promote himself, but to praise what was good and excellent in Saul. And think about this. It's just so backwards, isn't it? It's just so, I guess you could call it upside down. It's upside down, isn't it? This is not what kings do. Kings don't write songs about how wonderful their enemies are. Kings don't write songs and teach them to their nation to sing about how great the previous guy was. No, kings write songs about their own greatness, don't they? They write songs about their own glory and how they were able to defeat everybody who came against them and humiliate their enemies. Kings write songs like that and they teach those kind of songs to their people. Somebody needs to give David a lesson in being a king. He obviously doesn't get what what it takes to be a king here. He's doing the opposite of what kings are supposed to do. In fact, he's doing the opposite of what what all kings do do. He's doing the opposite of not just what kings do, but what normal human beings do, right? I mean, who in their right mind is going to write a song about how wonderful that guy is who just spent the last 10 years ruining your life? I mean, it's just backwards. It's weird. It's upside down. And yet it's exactly what God's word tells us to do. You know that? In Philippians 4, verse 8, we're told this, Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In Philippians 2, verse 3, we are told that in humility, we should consider others more significant than ourselves. Now think about that, really, let it set in. Don't you think that flies in the face of everything that our culture and our society tells us? doesn't it? I mean, how many self-help books are you going to find out there on the bookshelf that tell you that you should really consider other people more significant than yourself? Uh, Doesn't that seem backwards? 
Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone want to do that? Shouldn't we do the exact opposite of that? It's upside down, isn't it? And and it just gets more upside down. Let's continue reading. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Rather than just asserting himself and, and going out, David takes a minute to pray. He says, God, what do you want me to do? I've been doing my own thing for years now and and it hasn't gotten me anywhere. Lord, I just want to be in the middle of your will. I don't want to just make my plans and say, God, please bless my thing. I want to say, God, what's your thing? I want to be doing that. I want to be right in the middle of it. Verse 2. So David went up there, and his wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. After so many years of waiting, David is finally crowned king. But at this point, so far, it's only over the house of Judah, which is the southern part of Israel, the southern portion. Verse 4, the second part. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. At the end of 1 Samuel, uh, we didn't go into a lot of depth about this when we looked at it, but here's what happened. The Philistines, they found Saul's body and it says that they stripped it. And they put it, they hung it, they fastened it to the wall of this city called Beth-shan. And that was really the ultimate humiliation. They hung the dead body of Saul up there on this wall to, be, to decompose and to be picked apart by the birds of the air. And so when this happened, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they came together and they organized this stealth operation, this daring raid in the middle of the night. And by cover of night, they snuck up to the city of Beth-shan and they stole back the body of Saul. Why? So they could bring honor to it, so they could bury him with a proper burial. Now as David becomes king of Judah, the men of Judah tell him, you know, David, uh, you should watch out for the men of Jabesh-Gilead because, you know, they're fiercely loyal to Saul. They're probably going to make problems for you, David. You should maybe do something about it. So what does David do? He sends him a message. What, is he, what kind of message? Is it an ultimatum? Like, hey guys, you better get on board with what we're doing or else. No, he sends him a message to say, man, I want you to know that I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for what you did. You were valiant. God bless you guys for what you did. Again, David's going against the grain. He's doing the opposite of what anyone else in his position would have done. Anyone else in his position would have viewed the men of Jabesh-Gilead as a threat to their power. But David doesn't want to view them as a threat. He reaches out to them in love. And we're going to continue and finish here with verse 11. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, then took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manheim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So now, just as this time comes where David is able to step into this calling and fulfill this calling to be king of Israel, Abner, Saul's general, he refuses to accept David as king. 
and he quickly makes this power play, right? And he, he makes this power play where he takes this distant son of Saul's. You know, he's not, Ishbosheth isn't mentioned in any listings of Saul's son, which leads people to believe that either he was a, an illegitimate son or that he came from a concubine. And so he finds this distant son of Saul's and he, uh, he announces that he is now king of Israel. And so there's this kind of, you know, who's really the king here? You know, unlike Saul, even unlike David, Ishbosheth was not anointed by God. He was not called by God. This is really just a power play on the part of Abner to keep David from ruling over Israel. You see, Abner was one of Saul's men. He's been part of hunting after David for all these years. And so now Abner appoints Ishbosheth king of Israel in order to block David from becoming king. You know, Abner has no concern for the fact that David has been anointed by God. He has no concern for the fact that God spoke through the prophet Samuel, that he was taking the kingdom away from the house of Saul and giving it to David. Abner is just doing what anyone else in his position would do. He's making a power play. He's making a political move to protect himself by making sure someone's in power who's favorable to him. So for seven and a half years, this is what it's going to look like. Israel is now divided into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. David's ruling in Judah, and for the time being, Ishbosheth is ruling in the north. You know, if you were David, what do you think, uh, what do you think most people would do faced with a situation like this? Well, they'd probably say, you know, Ishbosheth's totally illegitimate. I've got people on my side. I'm just going to go crush him. I'm just going to go shut down this rebellion and get them rid of, get rid of them. I mean, this obviously isn't what God wants. I'll just go crush that rebellion. But for some reason, David doesn't do it. David simply decides that he's going to trust the Lord. He's going to trust the situation of the Lord. He's not going to attack Abner and Ishbosheth, even though they're taking what is rightfully his. What's unique about David, and this is really what we're here to talk about, what's unique about David is this. David doesn't think in terms of what would everyone else do in this situation. No, this man after God's own heart, his question that he asks is, what would God have me do? What would God have me do? And so here in this section, what have we seen? Well, we've seen David. And over and over, at least three times he, here, he has done the exact opposite of what everyone expected him to do. He does the exact opposite of what Saul would have done. He does the exact opposite of what any king would have done. In fact, he does the opposite of what most people, what we might say are in their right mind, would have done. You see, David's kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. His kingdom is the upside-down kingdom compared to what you might call the right-side-up kingdoms of this world. Michael Wilcox, he's a Bible scholar, and he said this, In the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and will hold suspect what the world thinks desirable. I'm going to say that again because this is the money right here. In the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and hold suspect that which the world thinks desirable. Don't you see? That's what David's doing here. The mark of a Christian, the mark of a person who has been born again, the mark of a person who has a heart after God's heart is a radical reversal of values from what seems right side up to the rest of the world. The, the reason for that is because, you see, we live in a world that has been turned upside down because of sin. 
You know, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, he talks about how we, we live in this fallen world where evil is called good and good is called evil. It's backwards, it's upside down. And God, he, he, he comes in and he sets those values straight. And, and when he does that, though, it appears to the rest of the world like we're the ones with the upside down values. You see, whereas the world values what? What is the pattern? I said every kingdom has a pattern and a power and a product. What's the pattern of this world? The things they value. Power, comfort, success, recognition. These are the things they're after. Power, comfort, success, recognition. But when you align your heart with God's heart, God gives you a reversal of values, a new set of values which seems upside down and backwards to the world. Think about it. Things like love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. That's what David did here. Who in their right mind would do that? It doesn't make sense. Forgive those who sinned against you, even if they don't care. Just forgive those who've sinned against you. Values like repentance. Values like submission. That's practically a bad word in our culture. Values like generosity and radical giving of your time and your resources to other people and other causes that don't directly benefit you at all. The world looks at those things and says, why would I ever do that? Why would anyone value those things? You see, the values which seem right side up to this world, the power and the comfort and the success and the recognition, that's the pattern of the right side up kingdom, what this world considers the right side up kingdom. Not loving your enemies, not submission, not humility. You see, the reason why a Christian though the power, though, the reason why a Christian is able to have a different set of values than anyone else in the world is because we have a different perspective on life. That's the power. The power is the message of the gospel. That's what enables us, empowers us to have a completely different perspective and to be truly free from the things which control this world, the things that have their hooks in everybody else. In Colossians 3, Paul tells us, set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, the reason why the world values power and comfort and success and recognition, you know what the power of that pattern is? It's the power of right now. It's the power of now. It's the power of you know, immediate gratification. The power of the right-side-up kingdom is the power of now. If, you've, if all you've got is right now, then there's no thought for the future. Right now is all that matters. And what's the product of that right-side-up kingdom? We talked about the pattern and, and the power. What's the product? The product is satisfaction now, but emptiness later. Satisfaction now, but emptiness later. We saw that played out in the life of King Saul. You, you know, you can see it throughout the world if you look around. When you pursue satisfaction now in things like power and comfort and success and recognition, you might get it, but it's not going to last. The power of the upside-down kingdom is not the power of now, but it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. And the, the a product, what is the product of the upside-down kingdom? It's this incredible sense of confidence, this incredible sense of freedom. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think if the gospel's true, doesn't that give you confidence for this life? Doesn't it give you freedom? I mean, think about this. If you really understand the gospel message, that because of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, 
you are accepted by God, you are loved by God, if you really understand that he purchased your freedom, that he forgave your sins through his death on the cross, and that because of him you can have eternal life, that means this isn't all that there is. And that is incredibly liberating. Because it means that right now is not all that matters. And therefore, the things that this world considers so critical the things that this world seeks after so much, power and comfort and success and recognition, you don't need those things. You don't need them. I mean, if you have them, great, but you don't need them. You're not controlled by them. You're not driven by them. You can take them or you can leave them because you know that your life ultimately is hidden with God in Christ. And when you set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth and things that are above where your life is hidden with God in Christ, then you aren't going to be shaken by the circumstances of this world. And when you understand the gospel, that is when you're able to be truly free. I mean, think about it. If you understand that, where my life is hidden with God in Christ, then I'm free. I'm free to live this life with abandon. I'm free to live this life with almost recklessly, you might say, I, I, but in a good way, right? I, I, you're, I'm free to forgive. I can let go of things. I'm free to love fearlessly, even my enemies. I'm free to give radically. I'm free to bless others and live outwardly focused because I'm not all that matters. You're free to do, live an outwardly focused life. Why? Because you're no longer controlled and driven by the desire for your own satisfaction right now. You're free to really live life upside down, which ultimately is the way that life was meant to be lived. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you changed places with us. Lord, that you took our place that we might have your standing before the Father. Lord, you took our sin that we might be forgiven. We thank you for that, Lord. We're eternally grateful for that. And Lord, may, it just, may, may we really think through the implications of the gospel. Lord, that if that's true, what does it mean for me and how I live now? Uh, it, it, it means freedom. It means uh, that the things of this world no longer have their hooks in me. And Lord, may we live with that. Lord, may we live out the implications of the gospel. May we live life with abandon based on true principles, not on self-seeking. And Lord, we just want to give our lives to you. We thank you that you gave your life for us. May we live our lives for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.